The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So I'd invite you to have your Bible ready in Genesis chapter 2. I think it's been, I don't know, three weeks or so since we were in Genesis. Genesis. We've been going through the book of Genesis after spending much time in the New Testament. And this summer began with the first book in the Bible because it is so foundational. So we actually started in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and just been going through very deliberately and systematically to see what how God opened up his word. Very important. It's been providential that we've been doing that because the issues covered... In Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, which is what my goal was to go through Genesis 1 through 3 very thoroughly, specifically, it's providential that we've been going through that to see what God has to say in light of what's going on in the world around us. Because every cherished, sacred, important, foundational institution and reality and truth that the Creator, God the Creator, issued and set forth and then wrote about it in the Bible is all in Genesis 1 through 3, how everything began that's important for us, as not just as Christians, but as humans. How everything got here, who God is as the creator, the origin of all things, the purpose of all things, the purpose of humanity, the first two people, how the first humans were created, just two, male and female, directly created by God as a sovereign, unrepeatable miracle, Adam and Eve, made in God's image, made sacred, made precious, given life by the creator, deliberate purpose in life of how to represent him on the earth. And then now we've gone into chapter 2 and saw specifically how the first human being was created with the, the gracious supernatural hand of Almighty God himself, breathing life into the first man, Adam, supernaturally, miraculously, and literally described in Genesis chapter 2, and even more detail about God's purpose and intent for the first human, and also for the intent of all of humanity since the time of Adam. And then we'll go on in Genesis chapter 2 and see how he creates the first woman and how God creates marriage as the first institution God ever gave humanity and the purpose of marriage, the roles of men and women in, in marriage, the roles of men and women in general, and so many other amazing truths that God wanted to continue in perpetuity and continuity throughout all of history because that was his intent, that was his design. He hasn't changed his mind. And so these most basic truths that we've been studying, learning together in Genesis, and that we'll see even further in chapter 2, chapter 3, every one of these main truths about God, these main doctrines is under utter, wholesale, deliberate assault in our culture. In, our day, in, a, in a way like never before, it's, it is unprecedented, at least in Western culture. I know it is even just in my generation. Those of you who are 30 years old or younger today, I just want you to know. The culture in which you live today, that, what, that you have grown up with, and what's being thrown in your face is categorically totally different than the culture that I grew up with just a decade or two before you. And you might be oblivious to it because you have no context to interpret that. And what I mean by that is this society, the society, the society in which we live immediately, but also the society across the country and around the world is so degenerate and depraved 
It's actually frightening. And it is so categorically different than when I grew up. And the degeneration is escalating at just a rapid rate. It's it's alarming. But if you know the Bible and you're a Christian, it shouldn't be surprising. Because the Bible says that very thing. I could quote verses in Timothy where Paul warned. In the last days, the Spirit explicitly says, the Holy Spirit explicitly says, the Spirit of God, God Almighty through the Holy Spirit says and declares it is binding and it is true that in the last days, perilous times will come. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. John the Apostle reminded us in the 90s AD, we are in the last days. We are now in the last of the last days. And as society goes on and time goes on and history goes on, Paul's prophecy of the book of Timothy that perilous times will come will just progress, actually exponentially get worse. The hearts of people will grow cold. You can go into that First Timothy, Second Timothy, and just look at the category of sins of what people are going to be like. And as you read it, you might think, oh, that's where I live. So some of these basic foundational truths that are sacred and precious to God that have actually been hallowed by, for the most of humanity and the most of society, all throughout history until just this last generation. Things that are so basic like what is marriage? No one in history argued with that, the basic definition of marriage. It was universal. It was one man and one woman, even those who were immoral. Whether it was the pagan Greeks or the pagan Romans who engaged in all kinds of pornea or sexual immorality of all kinds, not just homosexuality and lesbianism, but even to bestiality, they never had the audacity or even the thought to define that as marriage. But now we live in a culture where the most influential country, nation on planet Earth, takes God's basic definition of marriage and turns it on its ear and redefines it, which is an all-out affront of a hand of rebellion to God the Creator. That's really what it is. That's being orchestrated by Satan behind the scenes. So first we saw the assault of sinful man on the very nature of marriage, and then, well, how can it get any worse than that? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 how it could get worse. That, that sin will progress, and it will progress at an exponential rate, and then God makes those three declarations. God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over, and he gets specific with each giving over to the society, mankind in general, because of their compromise and sin and rejection of God the Creator. And it, it gets exponentially worse. In terms of the sins that they indulge in and their defiance of the Creator, it's progressive. So just read Romans 1. It's like, there it is. First, the sexual revolution of the 60s, then the redefinition of marriage, and now we are before us having to deal with the denial of utter humanity and his innate being as man and woman. There, there's no lower depth to which one can go is utterly denying who you are that is absolutely unchangeable in terms of how you were made by the Creator. You're either a man or a woman. That was Genesis chapter 1 in the very beginning of the Bible and has been uh, upheld and recognized 
by all religions for the most part all throughout history. It's undeniable. You're either a man or a woman. And it's not just a spiritual declaration. It's how God made you and me. It's in the DNA. It's unchangeable. You can't alter it. Down to the genes. You're either XY or XX. And today in our culture, we're getting thrown in our face of rebels against God who hate their creator, and that's the origin and source of it, is that even that is to be questioned. Even that is to be deconstructed. Even that is to be stripped down and redefined. Anything goes. Self-identify. I look like a man, act like a man, was made as a man, but I'm not a man, or whatever it is, and all the 67 different options you have as a gender. These are all utter defiance of what God has basically communicated in his word. So why am I preaching through Genesis? It's incredibly practical in the midst of all the cacophony of deception and rebellion and noise that's dissonance, that's deafening and not true. We need to hear a clear word from God. Very simple. Genesis is very simple. Genesis 1 through 3 can be read by a seven-year-old at face value, and they can understand it clearly. God wants us to understand his word. And that's what we're seeing, and that's what we're being blessed to see in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. So don't forget that as we're going through this together as a church family. The privilege it is to, to study the truth, the unalterable, inspired, binding truth that God has given his people. It is absolutely foundational, these truths in Genesis 1 through 3. How do I know they're foundational? Well, because of the issues that they speak to and inform, the most important foundational realities of human life, that's one. But also because the apostles routinely quoted from Genesis 1 through 3 in their teachings to establish the basis and foundation of all of human living. The roles of men and women, how we function in the church, how you should parent, how you should function in society. Utterly foundational. That's what the apostles did. So the apostles taught and believed Genesis 1 through 3 as real, literal, sacred history. Not only them, Jesus Christ our Lord in the four gospels continually refers to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3 to back up the gospel, inform the gospel, to show the need of the gospel and the need of basic humanity and also the sanctity of human life. Jesus believed in a literal Genesis 1 through 3. So must we. It's our great privilege. So let's go ahead and look at Genesis chapter 2 together. We are now in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. We looked at Moses wrote his book, not with 50 chapters, but with 10 chapters. We've talked about that. He had the introduction, which was chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 4 in his Hebrew text as Moses was writing, 1400 B.C. That was the introduction. Then he begins the book formally in chapter 2, verse 4, actually. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 is his first chapter. And he writes 10 chapters. That's how he broke up Genesis. And it makes sense. And we are in the first chapter that Moses wrote that goes from chapter 2 to the end of chapter 4. And there's a theme there, a consistent theme, of how creation began flawlessly, perfectly, exactly the way God designed it and intended, and then how sin came and compromised everything. And from sin, the world began to degenerate in defiance of its creator. And the ultimate consequence of sin is death. Why do people die? Well, the Bible's very clear. There, that's not a hard question to answer. The wages of sin is death. That's proclaimed in Genesis 2.18, and it goes all throughout the New Testament. The wages of sin is death. We're introduced to that in Genesis chapter 2. So we looked at already how God uh, created the first human being, Adam, miraculously 
out of the dust of the earth. He formed and fashioned a man out of the dirt and, brew, and, and breathed life into Adam, and he became a living soul, and he was the first human being. Every single person in this room came from the loins of Adam, literally. He is your grandfather. And then God created a perfect place where he could have fellowship with Adam, even though the world was perfect. He set apart a garden, a protected place, a lush and beautiful place that was utterly fulfilling of all of Adam's needs, and God placed him in the garden to live there, to enjoy it, to have fellowship to flourish, to fulfill his mandates that God gave him as he's to be God's mediator on planet earth, filling the earth, being messengers of the creator, the triune God, being managers and stewards over all of creation, over the animals, lording over them, ruling over them, taking care of the garden. And that's so we saw where the garden was, that it was to the east of Israel up by the Tigris-Euphrates River. And that's literally where God put Adam, and that's where we are now. And so that's where we left Adam last. He's been created. He's in this perfect environment. We don't know how big the garden was, but it was probably, could have been hundreds of miles in dimension based on what we're given in Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 and following. Huge place, beautiful place. Could very well be that inside the Garden of Eden were, like I said, everything Adam and soon-to-be Eve needs, totally self-sufficient. And it was like a sanctuary because God would come and visit Adam there. He would walk in the garden, have fellowship with Adam, communicate with him directly. There was no inhibition because of sin. Amazing relationship that Adam had with his creator. It was unbroken. It was pure. It was harmonious. It was sweet. There was no guilt. There was no shame. No curse. No sin. No Satan. None of that. It's unimaginable to us. It's kind of a glimpse of what heaven will be like. Not quite heaven, but that was the reality that Adam was experiencing. He had perfect harmony with the animals that were in the garden. It could be that inside the garden he had all the food that he needed to live and survive, said God. There was plenty, and then those two trees, he wasn't, one of them wasn't, he wasn't supposed to touch. With respect to the animals in the garden, it could be that some animals were there and some were not. It could be that certain birds weren't there, and it could be that the beasts of the field were not allowed in the garden. That's very possible. How do we know that? Because of the passage we'll look at today. Other land animals were already in the garden. The cattle and domesticated animals were in the garden already, apparently, based on the passage today. But the beasts of the field probably weren't in the garden, which is kind of interesting because Genesis 3 introduces the snake as a beast of the field. And I would propose that beasts of the field were not in the Garden of Eden originally. They were allowed in. They were brought in by God on day six before sin for a very specific purpose, to introduce the animals to Adam when he was by himself and alone. God created Adam first and then Eve. And so that's where we are just with respect to the context. Let me read Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, because that's what we're looking at. And if you have your handout there, today's message is when God made marriage, this is part two. We did part one a few weeks ago, and we're still on point number one. And that was God's plan for marriage, which was partnership. Verses 18 to 20. So let me read 18 to 20. So God makes Adam, puts him in the garden. He's by himself. Then the Lord God, that's the compound name of God. It's not just Elohim. It's Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh, that personal name of God that's not used in Genesis chapter 1. Only Elohim, the creator name, is used in Genesis 1. But now he's getting personal with Adam and Eve, the first two people. 
This is Yahweh speaks of a relationship, the relational God, the faithful God, the promise keeping God is how Yahweh is used in the Old Testament with the Jews and the Israelites and Moses. Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim. Yes, he is Elohim, the creator, but he's more than just a generic deistic creator who's impersonal and afar and transcendent. He's also imminent and personal. Hence, he is Yahweh Elohim. Jehovah, sometimes known as Elohim. Yahweh, the personal God and the creator, the intimate one, the one who is a personal God and has relationships with human beings that he created. That's what this means. Yahweh Elohim. That compound name, very precious, very specific. Moses is writing this. Moses knows this Yahweh Elohim. Moses didn't always know him. Moses was a pagan probably for the first 40 years of his life. Then he came to know this Yahweh Elohim. This is a precious name for Moses as he's writing this to his people. Let me introduce you to this personal creator who's the covenant-keeping God, who's the promise keeper as he's writing and Preaching to two million Israelites in the desert. Then the Lord God, then Yahweh Elohim said, It is not good for the man to be alone. This is day six, beginning of day six. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. I think it's a blue perfect. He had already made the animals. The Lord God had already, on day five, made all these animals. This is day six. Formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. And he brought them. He brought what? He brought the beasts of the field and the birds. Notice that the domesticated animals are not mentioned. It's just the birds and the beasts of the field were brought into the garden to Adam. Because probably the domesticated animals were already in the garden, apparently. Because they're mentioned in verse 20. But God brought every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. So Adam is alone and God isn't done with Adam yet. He's not done with humanity. Remember in Genesis chapter 1 we saw that on day 6 all it said was God deliberated, the triune God deliberated, conversed with themselves before he actually acted on his deliberations and his decree when he said let us make man, let us make humanity in our image. In the image of God let's Create them male and female. God made it very clear what his intent was before he even created humanity, that it was to be Adam and Eve, man and woman. Male and female together would fully reflect the image of God. God already imagined that. He planned that. He decreed that. And he articulated it for us in writing in Genesis chapter 1. We know exactly what the image, the full image of God would look like by way of humanity from which all of us came from. It is male and female. Male isn't sufficient. A man by himself does not fully reflect the image of God. God said, let us make humanity in our image. So the first human or humans had to be made in God's image. And all that that means and the main ingredient, the most important thing that is true about the image of God, we said, if you remember, is that God is a person. And everything else falls under that umbrella. God is a person. God happens to be three persons. God is a person, meaning he has all those attributes of personhood that we talked about. And also, as a person, he has the ability to have relations with another person in the most intimate way. And also, God is a, per God is a person, but God is also a social being. 
God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three eternal persons that have always existed together. There was never a time when the triune God did not exist. So Father, Son, and Spirit have always existed as three perfect, harmonious, infinite persons in one being called God. Long before humans were created, long before the earth and the angels were created, was the self-sufficient, almighty, triune God of the universe. Three persons, but as a social being that is inherently in god's nature social being interacting having intimate fellowship with one another as father son and holy spirit at the deepest level so when god said i will make humanity in my image part of that had to be that humanity had to reflect god's plurality of personhood and also the fact that god is a social being human beings in their very nature were created to be social beings that's what that means so when, God, so when God created Adam first, he wasn't done yet because Adam doesn't fully reflect the complete image of God. He already said, the image of God is male and female. That's why our verse today, Genesis 2.18 says, then the Lord God said, after making Adam, it is not good. Five times he's already declared, it is good, it is good, it is good. In Genesis chapter one, we saw that. Every time God completed or finished an entity in Genesis chapter one, he punctuated with that phrase, Tov, it is very good. It is good. No, it was good. It was good. Anytime he finished something, people ask, well, on day two, how come God didn't say it was good when he made the sky? Because he wasn't done making the sky until day four. But after he put the sun, moon, and the stars in the sky, that was the first time he said, it is good about the sky. Everything else, when he finished it, it was good. When he separated land and sea, it was good. When he created animals, fish, and birds, it was good. When he finished the land animals, it was good. Anytime he finishes something and says it is good, nothing else needs to be developed. Nothing else needs to be added or created. Nothing else is going to evolve from that point on. It is done. It is complete. That's why it is good. It's exactly the way God wanted it. It hasn't changed since then. Nothing has deviated since then. Now he gets to humanity, and he's already said his intention is to create humanity, male and female. He creates Adam. He's by himself. It's not male and female. It's just male. He doesn't fully reflect the image of God. And that's why God says, I made Adam, but it is not good that he is alone. That is not my intent. That's not the ideal. That doesn't fulfill a full reflection of me as a social, plural being. So God is a social being. Not a being who is a soul unitary being by himself and so we look at 18 and it says the lord god so this is absolutely significant it is not good for the man to be alone it's not good for adam to be alone therefore i will make him a helper suitable for him so i believe so god's already you know he's given maybe at this point adam decrees he's already said you can eat from this tree don't eat from this tree uh, you need to take care of the garden uh, maybe he's already said genesis chapter one uh, you need to rule over creation you need to subdue it you need to manage it the animals, you need to take care of the animals. You're in charge of the animals. By the way, you're going to have to name the animals and categorize the animals. It's your job. Adam, and here's his first test. It's uh, day one, day six. God puts him to work. God is putting him to work, but also I think God's giving him a lesson to teach him so he can grow. At this point, Adam has no experiential knowledge. He has to learn everything as he goes, in addition to divine revelation that God might speak to him. So there's a learning process here. And so Adam is all by himself. And maybe he thinks it's great. We don't know. But he's there by himself. He's perfect. He's sinless. He doesn't even realize that he's perfect and sinless. He's known nothing else. He's existed for a whopping two hours, maybe. He has no history to speak of. So he has a lot to learn. 
there's animals all over the place, these delicious plants that God's given me to eat. Well, this is, this is awesome. Well, not totally awesome because <laughs> I'm not done yet. So here's his lesson. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. The Lord God said, probably told that to Adam. Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. Well, what's alone, Lord? Oh, yeah, oh, okay. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I'm going to have to teach you that. So God does. Well, I'm going to make you a helper suitable for you. Well, what's that? Well, hmm, yeah, another good question. I'm going to have to teach you that. So that's why verse 19 is there. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. So when God said, it's not good to be alone, Adam, the animals were already created. They existed. Birds flying over the air, there's cattle and all of that stuff in the garden. So God's going to use that out of the, kind of like Jesus. Remember when he's doing the Sermon on the Mount and he's teaching the masses by the birds flying through the sky. Look at the sparrow. Look at the lily in front of you. That neither toils nor... That's what the Father or God has to do here. He's giving these graphic teaching aids to Adam. So he creates the animals, and it specifically says two categories of animals, every beast of the field. Beast of the field, we already talked about what of the field was. Of the field was that which was outside the garden. Plants of the field, beast of the field in the periphery, and every bird of the sky. So God makes birds, all the animals, and he brought them. So he brings beasts of the field and birds of the sky to Adam to see what he would call them. That was his job. So Adam has to name all of these animals. And we don't know if God brought them one by one in terms of their prototype or two by two, Mr. and Mrs. I, always, I just think it was Mr. and Mrs. because that fulfills the lesson. So God starts bringing these animals. Here comes uh, Mr. and Mrs. Hippopotamus. Not holding hands, but maybe holding tails. And they're introduced to Adam. And, oh, okay, let's see. You shall be called Hippo. Mr. and Mrs. Be gone. And they obeyed. And then here comes Mr. and Mrs. Chimpanzee. Maybe they are holding hands. You shall be called Chimpanzee. Be gone. Male and female. Then Mr. and Mrs. Golden Retriever, or whatever the prototype dog was. They're holding a bone together, probably. Mr. and Mrs. Dog. And as they come, and Adam gives them, this must have gone on for hours early in day six. This literally happened. I believe these were the prototypes of the animals. And whatever the name, whatever the man named a living creature, that was its name. That was the category. It was a scientific assessment and labeling. Adam did not have a fallen mind. He was a genius compared to us. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the cattle. That's not just cows. That's all the big domesticated animals. He gave them names, not Frida and Henrietta Hippo, that kind of thing. Not personal names, but categorical names that we would say genus and kind and those kind of things. To the domesticated animals notice that we're already there because god didn't bring those they were already there but also to the animals that god had to bring that weren't in the garden the birds of the sky they were just flying all over the world and god brought key ones to adam and he, he named those birds mr and mrs ostrich probably holding necks wrapped around one another who knows what that looked like and so this is going on and who knows hour after hour and then adam begins to realize and i think it starts to sink in wait a minute it's either everybody has a, a partner, perfect partner, 
male and female. Or it could be that Adam noticed, well, they're all different and none of them are like me. Everyone, every one of these animals that stood before me was an eye to eye with me that stood before me. Wasn't a counterpart, wasn't an equal. Wasn't the perfect complement to me. Or it could be that he noticed that they were all male and female, male and female, male and female. God had already probably given Adam the command, or maybe he does it after he was created to be fruitful and multiply. But he can't do that. He can't fulfill that without the perfect partner. So this is what Adam is learning. I, I would love to see this scene reenacted because I want to see if they actually, if God actually was capable of bringing two cats together. Because cats, my experience, I've had cats. They don't obey. But anyway, that's why God had to do it. Then he goes on, uh, verse 20. So the man gave names to all the cattle, birds of the sky, every beast of the field. But here it is. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the light goes on. This is a a tremendous lesson that God teaches him. And Adam is gaining knowledge. He's learning. This is experiential learned knowledge. And probably comes to the realization, wow, God, you're right. Verse 18, it is not good to be alone. Everybody has a partner and they can function and they have helpers. And I don't have that. I'm a solitary being. And so it could be that God showed him his loneliness. Hence that all-important statement in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. It is not. I just, I got stuck on that phrase. As I was studying this, it is not good for the man to be alone because of the implications. You know, God hasn't changed his opinion about that. Here it is 6,000 plus years later, and God still, I think, decrees from the Bible it's not good for a man to be alone. And it's not just not good for a male to be alone. It's not good for any human to be alone. You, you read the Bible, you see that from beginning to end. It is not good for man to be alone. That is not God's ideal. To be alone is the opposite of God's ideal for many, many reasons. And I, I wanted to stop and pause and reflect on that because this is a good opportunity because we have people who are alone in our church. We have people who are members who are alone. Maybe you're single. And maybe at one time you weren't alone and now you're alone. I got some questions. This is for all of us that I want us to think about practically in light of this truth that hasn't changed. It's not good for humans to be alone. It's not good for a person to be alone. Here's my questions. Uh, are you alone? You can answer these in your own heart. Are you alone? Do you feel alone? Do you ever get lonely? It's interesting that you don't have to be single living by yourself to answer yes to this, but do you ever get lonely? Do you know that somebody married, living in a family with a lot of people, who's even a member of a church with 200 people at the church, can get lonely? And they can get lonely frequently? Do you ever get lonely? Do you get depressed from being lonely ever? Well, if you do, you need to understand the reality of Genesis 2.18. It is not good for you to be alone. A couple more practical questions. Who is your best friend? Right now, if you had to pick, okay, who's my closest friend? best friend maybe some of you would say well i don't really have a best friend that that is a concern if you don't have a best friend you can't say jesus i know he should be your best friend he he is a friend i'm talking about humans who is your best closest human friend 
If you're struggling to think of somebody, that's a problem. Another question. Do you have someone to hold you accountable for your private life? Not your secret life, your private life. Like what you do at home. We all need accountability. That's, it's not good for people to be alone. Do you have anybody who knows about your private life? A roommate or a friend. That's possible. Do you have someone to hold you accountable? We all need accountability in our private life. I'm reminded of that every time, say, once in a while when my wife leaves to go visit the mom and dad. And I always appreciate about a two-day warning before she comes home so I can clean up the house. Do you have someone to hold you accountable regarding your private life? Here's a scary question. Do you have somebody to hold you accountable for your secret life? There's your private life as you're, you know, living and rubbing shoulders and sharing the kitchen and things are publicly in view at home. But then there's your secret life, you know, your thought life, the things you don't everybody, everybody doesn't see, your plans that you make in secret, things you do on the computer in secret, thoughts you have in secret. That's a harder question to ask. Do you have anybody holding you accountable for your secret life? At a minimum, I hope it's God if you're a Christian. hope you're honest with him. He knows your secret life and mine, whether you, whether you tell him or not. He knows everything, Hebrews 4. He knows our thoughts better than we do. Last question. Is it healthy to be alone? I'm not talking about occasional downtime or alone time. Everybody needs alone time for, Jesus said, have alone time, Matthew 6. That's a short period of time. But it's not healthy to be alone on an ongoing basis that just defies the very reason by which god created us and his purpose for him in so many ways so adam was by himself and it was not good in other words god what god meant was i'm not done with you it is not completed yet i'm not done with the human uh, race that's going to reflect my image yet adam i've only created you i need to create that perfect complement when adam and eve come together then it's very good says genesis 131 but until then it's not good i'm not done Man by himself is not good. Man by himself in isolation is not good. It is not healthy. Man by himself, woman by herself in isolation, it's not healthy. It is dangerous. Scripture speaks to that. God is a social being. We must be involved forevermore in social interaction at every level for health, for obedience, for safety, for preservation, and on and on it goes. Proverbs 18.1, he who separates himself, the NIV or the ESV says, he who isolates himself, that's even more graphic in terms of the imagery, that's a better translation. Whoever isolates himself, whoever separates himself from community, whoever is a loner purposefully, deliberately, in an ongoing, regular manner, that's what it means. Doesn't like to be around the crowds, has a perpetual case of agoraphobia. Well, what, what does the Bible say about that kind of a person? Whoever separates himself or whoever isolates himself from people seeks his own desire. One translation says, the one who isolates himself is selfish. Proverbs 18.1. He quarrels against all sound wisdom or she quarrels against all sound. It is, it's foolish. It is foolish 
Sometimes it leads to sin. It's contrary to God's desire for us. He doesn't want us in isolation separated. That's, that's just contrary to human nature. That's why from the 7-year-old to the 17-year-old to the 24-year or the 22-year-old at college, one of the things, oh, I don't have any friends, or I want friends, or I'm lonely, I don't have any friends. Why? What are they desiring? What are they aspiring to? It's not good for them to be alone. They want friendship. They want relationship. That's in their DNA. God put it there as creator. And many times we seek that illegitimately. But God can fulfill that legitimately. It's his desire. That's what he wants to do for his people. Isolating yourself is unhealthy, dangerous, dangerous for yourself. Get this, dangerous for others at times. If the church, if, you're, uh, if you isolate yourself from the church, you're a member of the church, you're a Christian, and you isolate yourself continually from the body, oh, I don't want to go to that, I don't want to go to that, I want to go to that, I want to hide in this corner, I want to hide over here. Nobody ever knows where you are, hardly ever see you. you're a member of the church, you're the body of Christ. You're really a Christian. And then Paul speaks to that in Corinthians and says, you know what? You're hurting yourself because it's foolish. You're isolating yourself from the body of Christ. You're hurting yourself. You're also hurting us because if one hurts, the whole body hurts. You're being selfish. That's what it says in Proverbs 18.1. You're not using your gifts. You're not serving the body. You're not plugged in. You're not edifying the body. You're more interested in your own interests and your comfortable circumstances than the glory of Christ in his body who needs all of his limbs for his glory. So it's unhealthy. It is dangerous. It is self-serving. Well, I don't feel like it. Oh, I'm intimidated. Oh, I get uncomfortable. Well, I could say all those things. That's true. I don't like it. I get intimidated. I'm uncomfortable. A lot of times I'm uncomfortable on Sunday mornings when I think, man, I got to go to church and preach and, and deal with all those people. I don't want to do that. Maybe I can call somebody else and have them do it. You're laughing. These are thoughts I have. Man, I'm confessing publicly. got to do the right thing child of god it's healthy for you it's kind of interesting that every time many times you know when these mass murders and mass shootings happen they do the profile they got a long history of the profile the high percentage of times of these mass shooters is the adage he was a loner they go and interview the school they went to amazing nobody knows him you mean he went to this high school for four years he doesn't have any friends. Nobody knows him. And the best a fellow student can say, well, uh, he was kind of a loner. He stayed to himself. Teacher doesn't know him. His own parents don't even know him. It's dangerous. It's just defined. It's subtly against God's design. That's why if you want to punish a criminal to the severest degree, you put him in prison. You don't just put him in prison. You put him in solitary confinement. In less than 30 days, he or she could go insane. And in eternity, if you live a life without Christ, rejecting Christ, you're, you're cast into eternal hell, the lake of fire. I've, I've literally talked to countless unbelievers and partiers and try to give them the gospel. And, oh, that's for you, man. See you in hell. Party, dude, with my friend. No, ain't going to be no party with your friends in hell. It's isolation. First and foremost, it's isolation from your creator, which is the exact opposite for the purpose for which God created us, social beings to be in relationship with him. That's the epitome of eternal hell and suffering. Darkness and isolation. Loneliness. 
so this is very important for us. This is very practical for us. Again, just highlighting, accentuating the importance of the fact that God is a social being in and of himself. Compare that with other false gods like Allah. We know Allah is a false god for many reasons. One is because he's a solitary being. The true God is a social being. God has existed for eternity past. His Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a social entity. Allah, supposedly the creator, exists in eternity past all by himself. Not a social being. That defies what the Bible says. And then when God creates humanity, it's male and female together. Social entity. Social couple. Social being who will become one, reflecting the image of God. The foundation of everything in society like marriage, marriage is a social entity. A plural, it takes a plurality for a biblical marriage. Plurality, one man, one woman. That's where it starts, by God's design. Contrary to what I read it two months ago in an article of some lady here in America who married herself and found a judge in a court to actually validate that, to be married to yourself. That's what I mean by all the most basic foundations of God, his truth, and reality are tur being turned on their ear in ways unimaginable, even just 20 years ago. So marriage is a social entity. The family is intended by God to be a social entity here on earth, a human family, because God has his own family, and we are a part of God's social family of social interaction. Jesus is our elder brother. God is the father. We are brothers and sisters with one another. We live, it's the family of God. Those are the most lonely people in the world, I think, that don't have families. Uh, we're entering the holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas, and that's when uh, suicide rates spike. And one of the common denominators of these people who do commit suicide, if we can find out, is their loneliness, their lack of connection, their lack of depth and intimate, meaningful relationships. They're being ostracized from families. That's the importance of that social reality that we have that God intends for his people, family. Uh, society is a so social entity in intended to be so by God. And even the societies and nations go on into eternity, into the millennium and eternity past, or into eternity future of social interaction. The nation of Israel, from the time it began, was a social entity and was uh, supposed to be a social entity to function properly as all the people complement one another and all the tribes complement one another and the families and the individuals. Then we enter the, the New Testament and God creates the entity of the church and it's a, it's a body, the body of Christ, the family of God. It's a temple. A temple is made with many stones. Everything, every illustration of the church inherently is its societal nature. The relationship of people with Christ as the head. It is not good for man or woman to be alone. And like I already said, in eternity future, after the church is glorified, the, the church is being prepared for the great wedding day when all of us collectively as a social unit, the saved bride of Christ, we marry Christ. That's a social interaction and relationship for all eternity being married to Christ. And then when you get into heaven, I feel sorry for Christians who have agoraphobia because when they get to heaven, man, I don't know where they're going to go. They're going to have to interact with the Trinity and Jesus and all those angels and those beings, and all those saved people. Maybe you'll actually like people, finally. The curse will be removed. So it's not good for 
Man, to be long. Go through the Bible. Proverbs 18.1. Sorry, Proverbs uh, 18 uh, at the end of, I think, 18. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. He who finds a wife, okay, single guy, finds a wife, it's a good thing. Marriage is not bad. Marriage is good. He who finds a wife, he who gets married, it's a good thing. Is it good for a young man to find a wife and get married? It says right here, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. It is good to get married. Not only that, he obtains favor from the Lord. So this, of course, ideally is applying to a Christian young man. God's intent is it is not good for that young man to be alone. It's good for him to find a wife and he will obtain favor from God if he does. Hence the command in Proverbs 5.18 to young men, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Meaning you got married when you were young. Enjoy your wife. Ecclesiastes 9.9, enjoy life with the woman whom you love. All the days of your fleeting life which God has given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life. Marriage is supposed to be a reward. Meeting your partner is supposed to be a gift and a reward from God. Enjoy it. Ecclesiastes 9.9. 9. Priests in the Old Testament were to be married. They were commanded to marry Israelite women. Priests were not single in the Old Testament. Priests got married. Why in the world so many priests in these religions and cults today don't get married? is contrary to the Bible. Priests got married. Nazarites got married. Being single in the Old Testament was the exception. There is no gift of singleness mentioned that I know of in the Old Testament anywhere. Jeremiah was one of the only exceptions where God told him not to get married because of the society and the time in which he lived. It was so horrific. Everybody else got married. The Old Testament prophets got married. Old Testament kings got married. They're supposed to have one wife and be faithful to her. All 12 apostles got married. Peter was married. Peter had a wife. The first pope, Peter, he was not celibate. He was married. It's clear from Scripture, 1 Corinthians. Took his wife with him on ministry. The Sanhedrin members were married. The gift of singleness was introduced by Paul in the New Testament. Prior to that, there was no technical gift of singleness. And it was to be rare. And it was rare. In the New Testament, Jesus was single as the Savior. John the Baptist, as far as we know, was single. His wife is never mentioned. The Apostle Paul was married at one time, probably, but then became single and then decided he had been given the gift of singleness by God, which helped him in his ministry. And he commends it in 1 Corinthians 7. But singleness or permanent celibacy is not extra spiritual. If you're single for your whole life, it's not a spiritual virtue. God doesn't like you more or think more highly of you if you take a vow of celibacy. Actually, the exact opposite is true. If you defy marriage by trying to be more spiritual, by taking a vow of celibacy so that you might impress others and please God, that's wrong thinking. That's backwards. Paul says that is demonic thinking. That's an actual satanic doctrine to minimize the gift of marriage and put celibacy up here. It's satanic. It's what it says in Timothy. So the norm and the ideal from beginning of history all throughout history is marriage. Then Paul introduces under the age of the church, there is this unique gift of singleness that is introduced by the grace of God and it's very purposeful and it is for the furtherance and maximizing of ministry unto the Lord. That's 1 Corinthians 7. Now, People get confused a lot about 1 Corinthians 7. It's a long chapter. And there are statements in there that Paul makes where he says at the very end, uh, to some man, whether it's the father of the bride or the 
groom-to-be. I think it's the groom-to-be. And he's telling the groom-to-be, well, I understand you're engaged, you're betrothed, and you, know, you have the right to get married, but it's better if you stay single and don't marry your fiancé. It's better to stay single. And people take from that, oh, okay. So Paul is saying that singleness is more spiritual. Singleness is better than getting married. And unfortunately, evangelicals have bought into that. Actually, the early church fathers bought into that. That's horrific. They make some ghastly statements early on in the church. The fathers, the early church fathers, like St. Jerome. St. Jerome did some good things, but here's a quote from St. Jerome. Woman is the root of all evil. I could go on with his quote, but I won't. (laughs) Augustine said some horrible things. Tertullian said some horrible things. That's where that whole idea that celibacy is more virtuous and better and that marriage is not a good thing. That's contrary to the Bible. They're they're speaking devilish doctrines even though they were believers. And, And I hear this in the church. And sometimes I'm surprised by the profile of some influential evangelical teachers who say similar things things like you have to wait until you're 30 to get married you have to wait till you have a steady career before you get married you need to wait until you're financially independent before you get married you need to wait till you have mastered singleness before you get married you need to wait until you're content in your singleness before you get married that is the exact opposite of what the bible says if you want to understand first corinthians 7 properly start at verse 7 That is the paradigm by which you understand the whole chapter. And it says, there is a gift of marriage and there is a gift of singleness. You need to operate accordingly. If you have the gift of singleness, then certain truths apply to you. Like, if you have the gift of singleness, you have the freedom and the choice to choose not to get married or to get married. That's what that means. So when Paul's talking to that engaged guy, he's assuming he is got the gift of singleness and you have the freedom to either marry her or not marry her but paul makes it clear if you don't have the gift of singleness how do you know that i think it's in verse 7 1 corinthians 7 9 the test for for singleness is if you're burning with in your desires in the inner man if you're burning with sexual passion says one translation you don't have the gift of singleness therefore paul says he commands he says you must get married it's a command so first you've got to figure out, okay, do I have the gift of singleness or not? And then if I have the gift of singleness, I have a lot of liberties and freedom. That's awesome. If I don't have the gift of singleness because I'm burning in my passions and I can't maintain self-control, I can't get off of the Internet. I can't stop thinking about it. I, my hormones are going crazy, and they have been for three years, and they're not subsiding. Oh, I must not have the gift of singleness. Oh, what do I do about this? Well, you should probably get married. And I've I've counseled, I've talked to, I've prayed with, cried with Christians who are single, wanted to get married, and sometimes for years and sometimes for decades. Well, what do you do? do? How do you minister to those people? Well, you've got to keep praying. And I've asked people at times, so you want to get married, you don't have the gift of singleness, it's been a long time, you're getting frustrated, you're getting impatient, sometimes you get mad at God, it's never going to happen. Have you ever talked to God in prayer specifically, dear God, I don't have the gift of singleness. Give me a wife. Give me a spouse. Give me a husband. God, your word says it is not good for man to be alone. This is not good for me, God. You said in Proverbs, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Lord, I want to be in your will. You you pray scripture to God. He's the covenant keeper. He's the promise keeper. 
You've got to go beyond that. You've got to get people in your life to hold you accountable. They've got to know. They've got to know you. You've got to be vulnerable and transparent. This is me. This is where I'm at. I don't have the gift of singleness. I've been praying. I'm frustrated. I need help. Pray for me. Talk to me. Ask me the hard questions. Help me. Introduce me to a good-looking Christian friend. We need help. Parents, you need to start teaching your children from the time they're this tall of a biblical view of God. That the norm is marriage. Unless you have that very, 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 very unique gift of singleness, which happens rarely. And they need to be taught from very young. Praying for their spouse, their Christian spouse, from the time they're young. God, bring the perfect compliment into their life. Not the perfect person, but the perfect compliment. What they need. Not what mother-in-law wants. What that person needs and what God thinks they need. The perfect compliment. Parents need to teach your children accordingly. So that when they grow up and they've got a worldview and they're really Christians and they have a mindset that yeah, any date or any person I meet is an occasion to test, to examine, to see, is this the will of God? Is this person my lifelong partner who's going to become one with me and serve the Lord all of our days on earth together? That's the Christian worldview that needs to be taught to children from the time they're very young. God will honor that. But that's what we need to do. We need to help our, our single people. Not to mention all of our, our widows and widowers. Just a word for widows and widowers. Paul says in Timothy that if you're a widower or a widow, 59 years old and younger, get married. First Timothy 5. 60 or older, you have the freedom not to marry. I think you have the freedom to marry, but you also have the freedom not to marry. Paul's reasoning, he already said it in 1 Corinthians 7. Marriage complicates life. Do you really want to be 65 years old and complicate your life? I actually had a friend, his wife died um, when he was 76. And he got married in the next year. And then I had another friend I served with. He's a pastor. He, he was probably 80 years old when his wife died and he got married and had a delightful marriage as long as the days that God gave him. So possible. I remember the first wedding I ever did was this uh, 40-year-old guy and this 40-year-old girl. They were Christians. They were sweet. They never... She never dated anybody in her life. He dated 50 times and got rejected all the time. So he was, he was kind of bitter. He was a Christian. He was mad at God. Told me that. She never had a date in her life. She didn't even think she was ever going to get married. And I'm doing their premarital counseling. And they were in love. And after he spent 20 minutes fessing up of all of his disappointments and his anger at God and how he finally got over it. And I said, well, well look at her, your fiance." Get married in a week. You're 40 years old. Was it worth the wait? And he smiled. Yes, God knew what he was doing. They moved out of the area, and then a year later, I got a little Christmas card with a cute picture of their first baby. A year and a half later, another picture of their second baby. So that, that was exciting. Anyway, so if you are a lonely person by yourself, talk to God, pray to Him fervently, be deliberate. It says, find a wife. Proverbs, I already read that one to you. He who finds a wife, finds a wife implies you're looking. You're being proactive. And that means, get, find the umbrella of God's will and get under that umbrella. 
Then you'll rub shoulders with somebody else under that umbrella. That means being obedient. That means being a part of the church, going to small groups, going to prayer group, everywhere where there's a crowd, where there's people. Go there. Be there all the time. Surround yourself always by God's people. Not only because that's what God wants, but practically the statistics uh, rise that you'll probably meet somebody. Somebody's serving in a ministry that you're in, so there might be some like-mindedness there. And God will bless you. It's not too late to start either. But you've got to be honest. You've got to be transparent. You've got to be obedient. You've got to stop isolating yourself. And then maybe you never get married. And God does that to us. We don't always get what we want or desire. And we do need to be content in poverty and in sickness and in loneliness if we desire to be married and we've got to trust god and god you are married to god if you're a christian aren't you god is your husband jesus is your father you have a family people will only disappoint you when you get discouraged about marriage just read that verse i think 26 in chapter 7 where paul says marriage is hard exclamation point i am trying to spare you that's if you have the gift of singleness well, I could say a lot more on that, but I just, my heart just had to stop as I think about really years of ministry of rubbing shoulders with and talking to and praying with and knowing many believers who they're alone. They are alone. And it is not good for us to be alone. So if you're a Christian, thank God for your Christian family. Thank God that Jesus is your brother. Thank God that the Father is your Father. You are secured Him. Thank God that God's going to fulfill and meet all of your needs, even during this time of trial. He is your sufficiency when we are weak. That's the great God we know. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the privilege to gather as a local church, to worship you through prayer through song, fellowship with one another, encouraging one another. Thank you for the privilege to study your word. Today, Genesis, thank you for preserving it for 3,400 years so that we can read it exactly as you gave it and with such a profound truth. Thank you that you have met the deficiency, the void, and the need of isolation and loneliness through the gift and creation of marriage, family, and especially the church. And those who particularly struggle with loneliness, God, if they are believers, remind them of your precious words. You said, I will never leave you or forsake you. A Christian is never alone thank you for the comforter the indwelling holy spirit who is the only one who can give a supernatural peace to any believer who is hurting regardless the trial or the malady what a sweet truth god thank you for your love for us we commit all this to you we pray in christ's name amen thank you for listening Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.